Welcome to this episode of Consider It Blacklit. I am Kim, your host. And for those of you tuning in for the first time, Consider It Blacklit highlights films, television programs, and stage plays that feature African-Americans both up front and behind the scenes. We also discuss social issues as it relates to some of these programs and how they may or may not impact our communities. So thank you for tuning in, and we hope you continue to tune in each week. Today, it is my pleasure to highlight a veteran actress of Broadway and television, Marie Thomas. Welcome, Marie. Thank you. And hello, everybody. <laughs> hi, hi. Let me ask you this. Do you go by Marie Thomas or Marie Thomas Foster? Uh, oddly enough, it's both names. When mm -hmm. I'm working, I just use Marie Thomas. But every time I turn around, people have attached Foster to it. And that has to do with the IRS many years ago. Oh, okay, okay. Separate us. And I said, no, I'm the same person. I'm the same person. So okay. that's why Marie Thomas Foster exists. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll call you Marie today. Okay. <laughs> so Marie, let's start off. Tell us how young you were when you first knew you wanted to perform. Oh gosh, you know, it seems like it's always been there. Mm -hmm. And I remember a story my dad told me when I was a little girl. He we lived on what was called Hunter Street, which is now Martin Luther King Boulevard in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. And across the street was a, a football field that belonged to the high school. So many times he would go over and be helpful and he'd put the uh, bases down or whatever was necessary, you know, for the, for the game. And then I would come back and demonstrate what the players did. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you would get down and you would spread your legs and you say, and they have the ball like this and they shove it up under their legs. And I was all of three years old. So it's, it's an un unhealthy situation <laughs> that they tend to encourage. Oh, come sing. Oh, come dance. Oh, come play the piano. You know, it's all my life, I suspect. You know, oh, wow. professionally, I, that's a different story, but uh, all my life. Okay, so what was your first professional performance? Uh, okay, now this sounds, I was passing for 16 years old, even though I was in my 20s, and I was in a film called, uh, about, would you believe, Medicare? Hmm. teenagers talking about something or another whatever and I was with real teenagers so I really had to kind of cover myself and be quiet and I had a big ponytail hanging in the back so that's when I got my screen actors card tell us what was the it may not have been your first professional performance but what was your first performance in front of an audience other than your family and friends uh let me see way back I worked with Vinette. Mm -hmm. I had done a lot of stuff prior to that. Well, since you, you brought her up uh, in this part of the conversation, let's talk a little bit about Vinette Carroll uh, for the audience, who she was and the work that you did do with her. She was the first Black woman to direct on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And uh, Vinette's theater, which was located um, on West 20th Street, only seated 66 people in mm -hmm. sort of a loft situation. Mm -hmm. And it was great to discover her because I've been doing bits and pieces all around, but she was constant. She had created what was called the Urban Arts Corps. And we did all kinds of things there. I mean, it was it was like being on television because you were that close to the audience. So you couldn't fake anything. You really had to be there in it. So that had to be when in the, um, ooh, I think in the, in the middle 60s, somewhere like that. Mm. And um, I was in the production of Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. I was a standby for, for Mickey Grant. Well, I was understudying, but I was in the show. And what was really funny about that was that Mickey's father passed during the rehearsal, during the previews. No, it was rehearsal. 
And I remember going out to the lobby after we had finished doing what we were doing and her manager said, is, uh, is uh, Mickey there? And I said, she's inside with Burnett. She said, well, I have terrible news. Her father passed. I said, oh dear. So I'm walking down the street, minding my own business. I go, oh heck, that means I've got to go on for her. <laughs> that means I have to make sure I learn all these songs that she's singing and these movements. But working with Vinette was quite easy for me because I had had two drama professors at Spelman College who were very different. One extremely do this and the other was kind of out here somewhere. So I was able to make my adjustments with her. She was quite extraordinary, believe me. I learned how to direct as a result of working with Vinette. And, um, and she would take no prisoners. She would leave the audience in the lobby for hours before she she let them in. Wow. Well, not hours, but at least a good half A long time. time. Yeah. And before she would let them in because she had a new idea that she wanted to place on the production. And then she was most gracious. She would say to all of them, thank you for coming. and. Her favorite line was, welcome, welcome, welcome. By then, of course, they're going to be enjoying everything we do, no matter what it is. But I had a wonderful experience. I think I worked with Vinette almost 10 years, I guess, off and on. And um, Broadway was quite wonderful. It was a double-edged sword because here you are in this production and then you have to decide um, what's the next hit. That's always a problem when you have a hit. What's going to be the next hit? Well, of course, it was your arms too short, the box of God, which I was not in. But by then, I was on daytime television. Tell our audience how you ended up getting the gig on The Doctors. It came out of people coming to see Don't Bother Me, I Can't Coke. I had a manager that called me and um, an agent called her and asked if I would like to audition I auditioned for everything. Well, okay, not everything, but I, I said, sure, why not? Even though I was working, I was trying to get out of the show. I mean, eight shows a week is enough to make you crazy, but at mm -hmm. least it was a job. So I went and um, I don't remember exactly because it was always easy for me to read and, you know, to act. That wasn't hard. And someone asked me, I was on another show just recently, and asked me about did the people who auditioned me, did I have to sing for them? And I said, I don't remember singing for them, but they were aware of the fact that I was in a Broadway show and that I had been singing. And I had this incredible song I had to learn because the character was a famous singer and lost her voice. And I had to hit notes that I hadn't always hit before, but because I had a fantastic music teacher, uh, Helen, I would go to her every Wednesday before the matinee. And she taught me where to place my voice by using a trumpet mouthpiece. And if you ever try to blow on a trumpet mouthpiece, you just can't blow into it. You really have to get that diaphragm and the placement and all that. And it made my voice very strong. And I, I was, those were the days when I tried just about everything. So mm. I wasn't afraid to try anything that I had to do. And generally I came out okay. What was the experience like for you being on a popular soap opera? The Doctors was a half hour, like most of the soaps at that time. And it didn't pay enormous amount of money, but it mm -hmm, was a change. Mm -hmm. But I just loved being on the show because for a minute I could relax because I had a real job. And I was on the show three, almost three years. And the acting was was wonderful to do. It was like doing miniature plays, you know, segmented. And what you had to know was they weren't going to give you your lines. You had to um, 
you had to know your lines or you had to improvise <laughs> or mm. something. But the cue card guys were so fantastic. The cue card guys, they had big placards, like, you know, big placards with the lines on them, not the little roller thing that you couldn't see anyway. <laughs> so if anybody was going awry, you could just kind of, you know, look like you're looking down and then you think up and they would literally get on the floor up under you. So you could actually see those lines because the show was not going to stop tape. They just weren't mm -hmm. going to stop in stars too cheap. You know, it costs money, I should say. <laughs> so mm -hmm, you weren't going to mm -hmm, do that. Mm -hmm. So it was a very good technical experience for me, but I had already been on the stage. So I, it wasn't really scary to that degree. Mm -hmm. I actually worked once, sometimes twice a week. I didn't have to work every day like some of the um, people who were major stars or major principals. And it was nice to always to, there was a little bunch of us who were like these side people. And so we would go and have breakfast after our first run through. And then we go over to Rockefeller. I can imagine 30 Rockefeller Plaza. We could just walk in and get on the elevator and go up to the studio. Can you imagine doing that now? You got to be sprayed or paint, yeah. whatever. You have to yeah. think. Times have changed. <laughs> I look at that and I said, boy, it was so easy just getting that building, just going upstairs. And, and uh, the first show was really a flashback of when I left the nursing profession. And I was humming because I had met this um, um, agent and he wanted me to go and make a record, which sounded good. Then he got me some dates and I was dating one of the interns. So the first show I'm in my room, taking off my nursing cap and all the rest of the stuff, trying to pack. And there's a knock at the door and I think it's the other nurse that's coming in. And I say, um, it's open Mary Jo. Nobody comes in. So I keep acting and doing things. And then mm -hmm. I'm, finally I get another knock and said, I said so, and in he walks. What he had, <laughs> what he had to do was he had to cross the entire studio from where he was because he was in a um, hospital room with his arm all tied up because he had an injury. He mm -hmm. had to take all of that off and take the gown and then put on the shirt and fly across the other side <laughs> to knock on. And the the knock was an off camera knock, which is why you know it it came twice. And then his collar was all up like this. <laughs> he was so nervous, but finally he calmed down and got his lines. And he was a beautiful person, first of a good looking person to work with. Now, who was this? This was Palmer Dean. Oh, okay. He passed away uh, many years ago. Mm -hmm. But we had a very good relationship. And as a matter of fact, we, we developed a very good friendship. What I did like about it was the job. I had a job. I went to work. People recognized me and I thought that was okay for a while. And mm -hmm. then I would become, I'm very private. And then I reached a point where I, I wasn't too sure if I enjoyed the notoriety and um, people talking, uh, coming up to me asking autographs. When I moved to Jersey, um, I would be in the supermarket trying to act like a normal person getting groceries and stuff. And so finally, I, this lady said to me, you know, you look like that girl on television. I said, you know, many people have said that to me. I know what you're talking about. I said, but I'm not. And I don't go down the aisle as fast as I could. But then the other time, there was a beautiful moment when I, my husband and I, and a couple, we had gone into New York to Little Italy to have dinner. And when we came out, there was this, this horde of, of Black people and family type people, you know, getting... 
And when I came out the door, they said, it's her, Ma. And they all rushed to me. <laughs> and I, I took a deep breath and I thought, oh, this is really wonderful. I never had the opportunity to identify with anybody on television. So when I realized that my presence on, on the screen was important to us as people of color, then I understood that that was my goal at, the, at that time. I didn't want to be on it forever because I'm a stage actress and I really kind of missed being on the stage. Being from the South, tell us what the civil rights movement was like when you were there and how you participated in it. My four years in Spelman were, were spent dealing with the civil rights movement. Mm. And I picketed and I sat in and I was too scared to go to jail. So what they would tell us to get up and leave, we would get up and go to another restaurant and sit in there. That was the, um, that's how we handled that. But what I found was most interesting by the time lunchtime came around, we had closed down downtown Atlanta. But there was one restaurant that was owned by African-Americans or black people. That, so we decided we'd go ahead and have something to eat. Well, in walks a whole slew of white people looking for something to eat, trying to get lunch. And I thought to myself, suppose we had told them that they couldn't eat at our lunch cut. Imagine, it, it was mm -hmm. just so ironic when I watched, I watched them walk and I had no problem with getting for them getting their lunch. Everything was closed down. If they didn't bring their lunch, they wouldn't be eating lunch that day. Mm -hmm. And then somebody challenged, I think some authoritarian person challenged Dr. Uh, Benny Mays. Didn't you realize your students, because it was a campus was closed, we were gone. Didn't you realize your students were gone? He said, well, you know, they allowed three cuts. Perhaps they were taking them that day. I thought mm -hmm. that was just very smooth and mm -hmm. <laughs> really, really terrific. We had different kind of opinion at our at Spelman because, you know, we were always under the gun of being young ladies and not being so, um, what is the word, balanced and valiant. And mm -hmm. we were supposed to act a certain way. And that's not necessarily from our president. That was from the board and mm. white who wanted to tell him we need, we should get back into our place and not do all of these things. That's in a book called Howard Zinn's Southern Diaries. Mm. Uh, and it's about his experience with all of the students at Spelman and how we sat in and how we, you know, we were strong. We were taught to be strong and persistent, you know, mm. and don't give up. I still have that in me. That's from my parents as well as from the school. You know, I don't give up, don't give in, keep working, keep working, keep working. If you can't go this way, go that way. If you can't go this, go over, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of, that's my philosophy anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. That was a really turbulent time. Yeah. Um, how do you think it compares to what's going on today with all the protests? Oh, God, I feel like we're back in the same thing. I looked um, at the protests that started last year, last summer about George Floyd. Um, and my daughter's in Los Angeles. And of course the pandemic is going on and these kids have to wear the mask and this and the other. She says, mommy, I'm gonna go march. I said, please march for me, but wear a mask, okay? And be <laughs> yeah. careful. She said, don't worry, I'm doing, I'm going out. And she had a big sign which says, uh, silence is violence. And I thought, go ahead, young people, because I've already marched. My legs won't, won't deal with it and my claustrophobia won't work. <laughs> but, but she was really, really right into it. And I admired them. So I thought, God, this is just wonderful that they have that kind of energy and that kind of strength. Also coming from the South, 
I knew who I was, you know, um, there was a discussion about um, segregation. I think Robert Cohen had a class when he's talking about Martin Luther King. I said, it wasn't that we wanted to have uh, relationships with white people. What we wanted was the opportunities that they had that we couldn't have. That's what we were fighting for, opportunity. You also have experience in academia. You were a professor at City College. Tell us what that experience was like and how it impacted your career. I started uh, working as an adjunct at City College, teaching, acting uh, twice a week, I think three times a week. And from that position came the full-time position and eventually assistant and then associate professor. And I taught at City for 12 years in the BFA, BA theater department. That to me was fantastic. First of all, it's a, it's a check, but at the second, it's also teaching other people about this business and what is necessary and how you must be able to do more than just act. Oh, don't mm -hmm. wait for the phone to ring. Learn how to direct, write your own plays, do your own things. And a lot of them did that. So I was, I was very proud to be a part of, of that whole genre. And it was on the campus of City College. So you don't get your necessarily elitist young people. You get people who are struggling to go to school. Tell our audience about the organization that you founded, the Children's Theater Workshop and the Peppermint Players. I always worked with kids when I was growing up in Atlanta. I worked at the Y when I started when I was 16 and I would create all kinds of programs, puppet shows, dance class, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I guess it was inevitable that the Children's Theater Workshop came about. And that started with 18 kids in my basement. At that time, my son was in third grade, he was eight years old. So we didn't want any kids younger than eight. Well, that changed. We had kids as young as five years old coming to our workshop. And after many, many years, we looked at the roster and we had serviced over 200 and something children in the last couple of years. Wow. Yeah. So where did the where did the children come from? Well, like the neighborhood and- Yeah, they came all from all over Essex, Union County, um, Bourbon County, you know, people who heard about us and heard about me specifically being in charge of it. And someone said that to me, it's because of you that we've come. It's very hard to find what I did, you know, in other groups, but that's usually you've got a dance group, you know, you people who create a dance company. But I taught, we taught theater um, and we taught um, dance and we had many different kinds of dance. We had wonderful teachers and we taught creative writing and voice. So all of that became a part as we continued to develop. And I had to move certain times. I was in a church basement. <laughs> I always think that's so funny. You're having parties, you're having theater in the church basement, but where did theater start? It started in church anyway. So we had to move from there after some 20 years, we moved. We bounced around a little bit and we finally ended up at the First Presbyterian Church in South Orange. Mm. And that was that was perfect because we had the space. Uh, our, our rent was reasonable and we really only used the building on Monday evenings. And that's when the Peppermint Players were rehearsing. And that's the group that I directed and wrote plays for. And I had a choreographer and a costume person for that group specifically. And then on Saturdays, we had classes, sometimes three classes at one time because we had the space, you know. Right. So the children's theater workshop was the actual classes where you taught kids. Yeah. Those, and those, then the Peppermint Players was the performance group. Yeah, that was a okay. team rep. But all the children performed at the end of the year. You know, we mm -hmm. scraped up $2 and went to NJ Pack, which was <laughs> $200 million. <laughs> 
But we had wonderful parents and uh, we fought for the place because the church was under the gun and that it was not, it didn't pay taxes and they were picking, how could they rent it? And no, it was just a big mess. For yeah, them, yeah. But you know, we got, we, we were in there from 2006 until 2018. And that's when I retired from it. Uh, I let the um, teachers and former students take over after that. You've also written a series of historically themed scripts that your Peppermint Players performed. Tell us about that. The four, the four plays that I did for the players, which dealt with uh, African-American history. The first one was the journey that um, covered people coming from, coming from Africa, being transported from Africa uh, to the civil rights movement. Then I did the Divine Time, which was about the 1920s, um, the Renaissance, um, yeah, Harlem Renaissance. Then I did Frontline, which was about the civil rights movement. And then I did No Going Back, which was about Harriet Tubman and mm. uh, Escape. And those kids, during this last moment when they're picketing, I got messages from them thanking me for giving him information about our past that they didn't have before and they didn't get in school. Either. Wow. Wow. How has the children's theater workshop been affected during the pandemic? The mm -hmm. pandemic struck, so nothing is happening right now. They had to mm -hmm. close down as well. They were trying to do classes and things on Zoom, but that, that kind of petered out after a while. And it's a very hard thing to do. People don't realize this kind of organizing and marketing and and uh, parenting in some cases and listening mm -hmm. to people's concerns. One lady told me, well, my child doesn't have lines. I said, not all acting is with lines. You know, you try to explain that. Mm -hmm. But it, it was a good experience for me and I'm not a person that gives up easy. So no matter what the problems were, we continue to go on. Well, hopefully, and I'm sure it will happen that they will gradually be back up in operation very soon. Tell us about some of the more recent projects that you have done. Uh, I got a job in 2018 to go to Chicago to do Having Our Say at the Goodman Theater. I had been um, in Knock Me a Kiss, which was done at the New Federal Theater in mm -hmm. New York. And then that's, that was done at um, Crossroads and done at the National Black Theater Festival. And the director, Chuck Smith, wanted me to do Having Our Say, and he's one of the resident directors at the Goodman in Chicago, and people say, go in Chicago. I said, yes, I'm going to Chicago. <laughs> I got off the plane on April the 9th and it was snowing. I said, oh no, <laughs> is this Chicago? Thank you very much. But, and, it, and it was hard to do because I, my husband passed in 2015 and I had nursed him for almost a year and a half with strokes and things he'd had. And I hadn't been on stage since 2013. This mm. is 2018. And my brain was not working in that I couldn't believe I couldn't remember what I had to say here most most a lot of the time because it was it's a huge script. I don't it know is. If you saw the play. It's it's just enormous. Yes, I have seen it. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's it's amazing and it's wonderful once you get it going and once you talk about the history, which I'm a history buff anyway. Um, but I finally got it, you know, I got the, the reins and okay, you're an actress, show me you're an actress in my head. What a wonderful experience that was. Have you done anything uh, more recent than um, having our say, didn't they have a doctor's reunion recently? I feel like oh, I read that somewhere. Yes, we did. That mm -hmm. was the most interesting thing. <laughs> About a year ago, I think Count and I came in because Count was on the doctors at one point. So we drove in together. 
And so we were interviewed about our thinking and Kim Zimmer, Anna Stewart, Liz Hubbard and myself, we were all on the same couch talking. And so they asked us about the scripts and how did we feel about the scripts? And so uh, Liz, so well, many times I would change the lines and would let them know, blah, 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 blah. So then I said, I never had any problems with this show. I was just glad I wasn't playing a maid or a cook. You know, I was <laughs> glad, glad I had some lines and some stuff, you know, to talk about. What's next for Marie Thomas? Well, you know, this past year, 2020, I wasn't thinking about doing anything. Actually, I was kind of enjoying my lockdown because I didn't have any responsibilities. <laughs> so I didn't have to go anywhere. I got a call to do MacIver, which I'm just told now has been canceled, but it's, it was on for five seasons. And I had to get on the bus, not on the bus, on the plane and get to Atlanta. This was in November. And I was there for two weeks and I stayed with my brother and my and, and his wife. And I was driven to the studio by my brother every day and picked up. Well, was, that was a gift because I hadn't, hadn't done nighttime television. I did the Cosby Mysteries, which they don't show these days, but I hadn't done a lot of nighttime television. And I so enjoyed doing that um, with these young people who were the MacIver group, um, Lucas Till, and then there was the, uh, Asian girl, and then there was African-American young man, and then there was a young lady who could be both Middle Eastern and American. They were fantastic. I thought the Millennium group, hey, go ahead. They, they were willing, like me, they were willing to jump on buses and leap over things and do all kinds of stuff. And when I got the call sheet, there was a whole bunch of stunt people that were on at about 10 or 15. I said, oh, I hope I don't have to do any stunt things. But I didn't. It was a much easier part and it, it was great. I have no idea what's next. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just lazing around trying to put my house back together. And when I look and I said, now, how did that happen like that? Why did I let that go? I have found things I haven't seen in 10 years. <laughs> and my, my daughter helped me get rid of the costumes. My whole basement looked like a costume shop. And because the young lady and uh, her cohorts are going to continue when they can, I said, you guys come and get these things because I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I don't want to throw them away. And some of them are really quite lovely, you know. So I'm still doing that. I'm not, I'm, I've learned how to self-tape. Mm-hmm. You know, but my daughter, I send it, send the final thing to my daughter, and then she edits it and then she uploads it and sends it to where it has to go. That's how I got the mic out, but it was a self-tape. Okay. Prior to that, I did a, a commercial for Spectrum. Didn't think anything about that. That played and played and played, and thank God. <laughs> it was a Christmas commercial where I'm teaching my children how to make my Christmas cookies since we're not going to be together for Christmas. So Aww. yeah, it was it was those two jobs at the end of 2020 was like a gift because mm-hmm. I wasn't looking, I wasn't expecting. I did everything everybody asked. If they said do self-tape or if I come on, you know, like you on a on a particular thing, you know, that was um yeah. That was good. Well, I predict that we will see you on stage again very soon. Oh, all right. I like <laughs> I'm just putting that out in the universe. <laughs> No, I love being on stage. Well, everyone, I would like to thank Marie one more time, but thank you for tuning in this week. And until next week, consider yourself Blacklit. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 